the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, I have to admit, this is really, really embarrassing. I mean, we've brought somebody of the caliber of Joe Murray, best-selling author, educator, constitutional lawyer, here on the program this afternoon. And just kind of going through the news, there really isn't anything to talk about. So instead of a report and conversation with Joe Murray, we're going to invite Joe to instead share some of his favorite hits from Tom Jones on the program. And let's give him a nice round of applause, please. Welcome, Mr. Joe Murray. It's not unusual. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, how's that for a rip-roaring start? I I figured that was the only appropriate way to start the show tonight, Joe, given given the enormity of what's been going on. So let me just start. Let me just start with with just a few random topics Uh, to begin with. um, If we thought about a laundry list of things like uh, EVs spontaneously combusting and burning a structure to the ground or $3 billion rockets exploding 35 seconds from takeoff or botching a campaign announcement so badly that all the people are talking about is how badly it was botched than the campaign itself. I suppose these are all issues that Elon Musk can add to his resume now. (laughs) It's just a tax write-off, nothing much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man! But when you when you have as much money as him, you know, I think you have to fail every now and then just to keep life interesting. You know, I guess so. <laughs> now I did a, I did do a little bit of research, uh, and, yeah. and this is where I'm really curious to get your your insights on as to what you think possibly could have been going through the mind of Ron DeSantis's campaign personnel. And I, and I want to start with the disclaimer that no, we're not going to you know spend the hour picking on Ron DeSantis, but it. It is curious. Um, number one, they were kind of bragging. 700,000 people were watching. Yeah, yeah, and the typical State of the Union audience is anywhere between 27 and 38 million viewers. And yeah. of the normal daily Twitter users of about 187 million people worldwide, the percentile that actually watched that sad excuse for a campaign launch was less than something like 0.04%. Why would anyone advise to go on a narrow platform like that, coupled with the fact that clearly they didn't do much stress testing to make sure that it wouldn't go in the direction that it went, south? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, if we're being honest, Twitter is, is no longer the, the hot spot of social media it's it's not it's it's tiktok for lack of you know unfortunately basically but twitter is not the place you go to be new and exciting and and let's be honest um you know i'm going to be keeping this as objective as i can 
Ron DeSantis has a huge mountain to climb. This is not going to be easy for him. I, you know, I was watching uh, on uh, Neil Cavuto earlier today. They had that big mega donor on, and he was trying to make the argument that Donald Trump is like the Jeb Bush, right? That uh, that Donald Trump looks to be a front runner, but he's a soft front runner, and and you know it, it could be Jeb Bush all over again. And I went and I pulled up the polls of this time back in 2015, and and Jeb Bush had about 16 percent. Uh, yes, he was the power guy. Yes, he had the dynasty name. Yes, he had the money. But he didn't have the numbers, uh, okay? And whether you like him or hate him, Donald Trump's at 50, I think 53% if you're looking uh, high, maybe in the low, um, you know, mid to high 40s if you're looking at the lower polls. So if you're Ron DeSantis, you have to figure out a way to, to make yourself appealable to a group of voters that don't really tend to look at other people. Okay, I mean, these are loyal folks. I mean, uh, these are the, you know, these are the type that you're not getting divorced, folks. So Ron DeSantis has a big hurdle, and that is trying to find uh, a, a part of this campaign where he can thrive. And more and more people are entering this campaign and trying to take that spot. Just Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, um, and there's more on the wings, right? So you need it to have a smooth campaign start and it didn't it became quite laughable it looks as if the DeSantis folks are trying to to find their own way before they can even try to find their way into the hearts of the American people uh, again this is way early so I'm not going to sit here and say that he's over and it's, it's you know the fat lady has sung but you know you're not off to a good start and you really need to be because for better or for worse Trump is the formidable opponent he has the loyal base and he has a way of, of really thriving in these crowded, contested fields. Well, look, you have been deeply embedded in presidential yeah. campaigns before. You have a lot of experience at this. And yeah. at the end of the day, Joe, from, from your perspective, having worked on um, high-profile presidential campaigns, uh, aren't optics yeah. ultimately kind of the, the penultimate of what you're looking for here? And, yeah. and if that be the case, imagine what cannon fodder will be used by everything from, you know, Donald Trump himself to any of the other Republican candidates to say, well, here, here's the image, Donald Trump coming down the golden escalator on one and and the other of Ron DeSantis's big announcement being interrupted over the course of 35 minutes by silence, disconnects, hello, are we on? And, and of all people to think that they would conduct an interview that would really help to sort of set the tone for the, the primary campaign Elon Musk? I mean, really? Of all people? And and you know Elon probably did it because he's aggravated that Trump's not back and he's staying on Truth Social. Uh, But again, you know, it it doesn't hurt Eli. It hurts it hurts DeSantis, and you know, my grandmother always told me that perception is reality, and, and you hit the nail on the head. The perception is, is that you have a governor who everybody believed was going to be the guy that replaced Trump, and whether he waited too long, which I think he did, uh, he 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 went down on the polls before he even came in. I mean, it's pretty hard to lose ground <laughs> when you're before you run, and he did because usually when you're not running, you can still have that air of the anticipation. People are trying to get you in. You want to you want to get those numbers up, but he was. He was declining in the numbers as Trump was being indicted, okay? So this is not a good look on DeSantis. And and what 
the other problem he has, Craig, I mean, Florida, he's done really good in Florida, and I'm not trying to minimize what he's done in Florida. But if you look at what he does, and I think for conservatives, myself included, he's tackled some issues whether on the critical race theory, on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the books that are in the school libraries. But these are not really big issues right now for most people. I think they are among conservative circles, but I think if you're looking at the broad picture, they're not. He has to be something other than the anti-Disney guy. And I think he is pigeonholed. You know, I used to love X-Files. That was one of my favorite shows. And you had Fox and Scully. But, you know, after that show, I always thought of them as Fox and Scully. And they could really never get that other breakout role because you have been typecasted. And I have a feeling that DeSantis is going to be typecasted as the guy that's kind of the, the one issue wonder. And and you can't do that right now because Trump is going to start to pivot. He is going to start to pivot to the economy, which he has a good track record on. Uh, he did get this economy going again, and then COVID came, of course. But he's going to start talking about reaching out to the Rust Belt. He's going to start talking about this. And, and Trump has that every day, every, day, every, every Joe kind of guy. Uh, look about him, and DeSantis is kind of awkward and and not the type of person that you would go have a drink with. So DeSantis, there's plenty of time. He's not out, and I still think if if anybody's going to give Trump a run, it's him. But right now, I I can see Trump now starting to defer to the other candidates to beat up DeSantis, and he can start putting his attention on Biden and create the perception that the two presidents are going to go at it again. Uh, let me get your thoughts on one other topic. A number of people have tossed their hats in the ring. In addition to Ron DeSantis, of course, you mentioned about um, Tim Scott, who just announced last week. It was um, seemingly, you know, eons ago when Nikki Haley announced. Uh, my former broadcast colleague, Larry Elder, here from California, has announced. As you're watching all of this unfold, and you're somebody who intimately knows all the inside details as to how Donald Trump operates, meaning Mike Pence, his former vice president. Do you look at this and say, yeah, maybe I'm going to sit this one out? Does he have four years to wait? What would be <coughs> what would be his advantage to waiting to make an announcement, given how, you know, there's some pretty decent quality people on this list here early on. And we're, you know, a year and a half away or more from the, the general election. So what, if you're Mike Pence, what are you thinking? What's your strategy right now? You can go two ways. Uh, first of all, if you look at it, you know, you don't have to be the smartest guy to win. I mean, if you look at Mike Pence is incredibly smart. He's well-versed in policy issues, uh, very articulate, and, and he is extremely qualified for this. But the same thing could be said of Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was very articulate. He knows the Constitution by heart. Yet that isn't going to win you the race. We saw that in 2016. Uh, you know, going up against Trump is really tough. And he, he is the ultimate shapeshifter. And, and you can't just say that I'm the smartest guy in the room and think you're going to win because you won't. But on the flip side, if we go back to the primary of 1975, there was a fellow that entered around this time, and his name was Jimmy Carter, and he was less than a percentage point of the polling, uh, getting a less than a percentage point of the poll uh, polling support at this point, and he ended up going to be president. And then you could look in 1991 around this time. You had a fellow by the name of Bill Clinton out of Arkansas that nobody was taking seriously. And you could even say Barack Obama in 2008. Nobody thought Hillary could lose it. So, yeah, history does support that the person you think is going to get it is going to, uh, to slip and stumble and fall. The only thing that I would say that's different now, Craig, 
is that I don't know what else could happen to Trump. I mean, <laughs> he's been indicted. He's been accused of sexual assault. He's been found guilty of defamation. He's been found guilty of, of assault. I mean, I, he's looking to be indicted in Georgia, and more indictments are coming down the, the line, and his poll numbers keep rising. So I know when people point to that, yes, that did happen historically, but usually people cratered on two reasons. A scandal broke out. We all remember Gary Hart, right? That's sure. how Dukakis got it. Or the person, uh, you know, is, is, is an establishment type person that people think is being handed the nomination and there's a populist uprising. That was Hillary Clinton. Neither one of those situations are going to fit Trump. So I, I'm going to put my money on that. I don't see him stumbling anytime soon. Well, and, you know, to put this in perspective, we have to be mindful of the fact that we're not talking about one election. There's two elections here. There's the primary and then there's the general. And, you know, this is not a comment against or in favor of the former president, but to say that of all of this list of candidates that we've talked about, uh, one thing I can tell you for sure about Donald Trump, he's not a wallflower. He will come out the gate boxing, no doubt about it. And, and even as DeSantis has tried to kind of, you know, he doesn't want to offend the base. He's trying to kind of jockey himself for position and set up a contrast between he and Donald Trump with never mentioning Donald Trump's name. Meanwhile, Donald Trump doesn't pull any punches. He's just right out there saying, boom, this is what I think. Take it or leave it. And I have to wonder, you know, given how drastically politics have changed in this country, whether or not the quiet, nonchalant, non-pulsed, humble approach is going to necessarily get you any votes, especially when, obviously, the the 10-ton political gorilla in the room is Donald Trump. And I think that's an excellent point, because I think everybody's telling DeSantis, oh, you can't attack Trump because his people are going to be upset and they're going to come at you. And there is a core group that would do that. But you have to also think that conservatives are sick and tired of milquetoast politicians who tell us what we want to hear, and then they don't stand up for it. So I would be under the school of thought if he starts hammering back at Trump. Even though it might upset a core base of Trump, those people that are with Trump because they want to fight her. I think they would look at DeSantis. They're not going to look at him if he tries to do this polished uh, campaign where he tries to go above the fray. Because everybody knows right now in the world that we're, we're in, you can't get above the fray right now. We are in a, a, a duke it out type of mentality. And I think that's where if DeSantis continues on this trend where he's just going to be Mr. Nice Guy and, and try to paint a picture of, of difference, he's not going to be heard. And, and if you're looking at Trump's CNN performance... That gave us a glimpse of 2016. I will tell you, Trump was not in it in 2020. He gave horrible debate performances. He, he, he looked tired. I know he had just had COVID, but he was not on the game. I think the job had weighed him down. That is not Trump that we're seeing right now. We're seeing that Trump of 2016. And you gotta, you gotta stunt that growth now. If you don't get that growth stunt, stunted over the summer, He's going to go into the fall, and I do not see how he stops. Yeah, and and to announce your your uh, your campaign launch with a big flash bang, probably far more 
preferable than just a whimper, or in this case, uh, Twitter. Any rate, <laughs> visiting today, best-selling author, educator, and lawyer Joe Murray. His book, by the way, called "Take Back Education," available through the usual suspects, local bookstores, and of course through Amazon. Oh, there's so much more to talk about. We'll get to what Californians think about Dianne Feinstein and trouble a-brewing in Texas. That and more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with best-selling author, educator, and attorney Joe Murray, looking at the highlights in the world of news and their impact on your life. Here's one that certainly impacts all Californians, Joe. And I, I know, you know, even those of us that don't agree politically, um, certainly I think if you have a heart, feel sorry for what Dianne Feinstein has been going through. What uh, with a, a, You know, shingles is... is difficult at any age, but especially when you're up in the late 80s, it, it is really horrific. And she's come through a very difficult period of time health-wise, but it also has a big majority of Californians now, according to a report in, uh, um, provided by the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies that says the vast majority of Californians, hey, thank you for the job done if you agree with her, but she should step down because of her declining health. <clears throat> she's 89 years old. And she's got until January of a year from now before her term is up. Uh, you know, we talked about this um, last week, the, the notion of, of having some kind of standards, if not term limits, maybe at least age limits. But once again, you know, I think what's problematic here is we need a mechanism where voters can say, hey, you're not doing the job. We need to get somebody who can. No, and especially when it comes to a senator spot, which... Initially, as you know, the founders intended to be an appointed spot. It was not going to be a directed elected position. And the House, of course, was, and it's a two-year interval. So the voters have a better chance of getting out rid of somebody that they think is no longer fit in the House. In the Senate, you get those six years. That's a long time, Craig, to be able to hold that spot and to not have a really uh, sustainable mechanism to deal with something like this. I think it does disenfranchise people. Uh, and I think we need to go and say, look, since we decided to amend the Constitution and allow the direct election of senators, we now need to go back and say, OK, just like we do for the president, we need a mechanism that if a person is in bad health or cannot perform their duties, that we can have a recall or some form of, uh, of protection that will give the people of California uh, their voice. And, and I think, you know, nationally, too, especially when you have a Senate that is so uh, so tight and, and it has such such narrow margins. Um, you know, I of course am not ha- uh, not upset that the Senate can sometimes be gridlocked, but I think if we're being true to the spirit of that document, we need a mechanism so we can make sure that the people who are taking the oath to serve the office can actually perform their duties. Well, that's just it, and I have to agree with you because, you know, like Wall Street, hey, when I see gridlock in Washington, D.C., I'm thinking, well, 
they can't get anything done, but that also means they can't destroy anything either. So there's you know, here's that, yeah, exactly. that sort of that 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 silver lining. And yet at the end of the day, listen, there's only a hundred of them, as you point out, and you know there is critical work that needs to be done. And yes, the fact that uh, some um, judicial confirmations are not happening because she's not there, not necessarily the worst thing on the planet to happen. Yep. But the business of the people needs to take place. And I'm sorry, this is not a part-time job. you got to be there, and we're sympathetic in terms of health. But clearly at 89 years old, it's not a question of, ah, she'll get over and she'll be fine and she'll go on for another 20 years. No. So, you know, at what point do you say, let me, let me acknowledge the health situation that I'm facing and say, you know, I'd love to serve out my term, but for the good of California, the sake of the people that sent me to Washington, D.C. and my own health, uh, I'm going to have to step down. And I, and I believe the mechanism is, doesn't the governor appoint the replacement until the next election cycle? Correct. Yeah. So, so you know that Gavin Newsom is yeah. not going to go out and and appoint you know you or me to that yeah. position. So you know it's fairly safe to bet it's going to be another liberal Democrat. So I don't understand yeah. why then all of the concern. It might be Oprah. You never know, right? You never know. <laughs> it could be Oprah. So you know you get a vote. You get a vote. I'm oh, sorry. So anyway, but uh, but in that part, I mean, I think that we have to understand too. I would be a little bit more sympathetic. If, if she had just got elected and there were some unfortunate or, you know, you were very young in your career uh, and, you know, you had worked so hard for this. And, and I could see being hesitant of letting it go. But, I mean, she has a legacy. She's been there. Uh, you know, you got to know when to call it quits. You don't want to be still trying to do a swan song and you're diving into an empty pool. And I have a feeling that's where she is right now. And I think. Uh, you know, you got to get close. And, and you said there are no fears. You're going to get someone that is liberal in California. You are not going to get you are not going to get someone like you or I. And and so you got to ask yourself, OK, I feel sorry for your health. I feel sorry that you're going through this and it is agony. But you're being selfish right now. And, and I think it's time that you step aside and let somebody else come in that can represent the interests of California. And, you know, if there's somebody from her office listening right now here in San Francisco, I'm inclined to kind of think not. But just on the wild side, did that be the case? Listen, if Diane Feinstein is worried about finishing or, or sealing her legacy for many lifelong Bay Areans, her stepping into the sudden role of you're going from the president of the Board of Supervisors to the mayor because the mayor and a member of the board have just been murdered. That season where where she kind of came into her political um, uh, wholeness, so to speak, uh, it cleared back in November of 1978 with, with the Moscone assassination. Uh, th- that will be forever cemented in the minds of San Franciscans. Uh, she rose to the occasion under horrific circumstances and again, Again, setting aside political persuasion and politics for the moment, uh, she has served faithfully and ably for decades the state of California. I think it's time that somebody say, you know, for the, for the good of the sake of 
the state and the nation. Time to step down. Speaking of time to step down, there's a segue for you, Joe. What's going on in Texas? You know, a lot of folks looked at Texas and say, well, they know how to do it. Boy, they, they've got their, their, their politics locked down well, and they, 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 they seemingly got it, got it handled there. Um, you know, to begin with, hearing that, and I've watched the video on the news, Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan, that, uh, you know, unless there was a significant medical emergency taking place, which he has yet to come forward to address, which makes me a bit on the suspicious side, seemingly in a late night House meeting, maybe had a one too many cocktails during dinner. One issue there that's now uh, has many calling for his um, removal, if not um, for him to step down. And, and, and one of the loudest voices calling for House Speaker Dade Phelan to, sp- to step down is, is oddly enough, the, the Texas State Attorney General, Ken Paxton, who now has his own set of pretty severe problems. I mean, there is right now uh, a House committee recommending impeachment for the AG based on allegations of abusing his office for the benefit of a donor. What is that all about? I mean, it's Texas. This is a this is a two step. I don't know if they're going to be able to get out of yeah. quickly <laughs> down there in Texas. But, you know, what you've kind of summarized some of the very delicate issues you have an attorney general uh in texas who also has other political ambitions uh who is under uh, the microscope by the house and then you have this going on here this is getting to become quite nasty down in texas and if you look at, at what paxton is saying there is he's trying to play the the thing of look i am i am so sorry i don't want to have to do this but this conduct has so negatively impacted the ability of the law of the legislature to do its 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 job that I have a duty to the public to come in. I I don't know if that. <laughs> I mean, yes, he might have had one too many, and yes, it might have been an unfortunate uh, incident. I don't know if it, if it rises to that level, uh, and I don't know if Paxton is now trying to just use this to deflect. And, and, and in order to uh, kind of get a jab back. But what is going to happen is this is going to spell some trouble for Texas. And, and Texas needs to kind of get its act together because I know it seems to be re- a very red state, but demographics is changing in Texas as it is in many other states that used to be solidly red. So, you know, Republicans fighting against each other need not need not always be the way because there's going to be a day when that that purple comes through and you start to see democratic inroads we see it every now and then in texas and and you're seeing it in its neighboring state well what you know in between louisiana and mississippi with a democrat poised maybe to take the governorship uh gubernatorial race so yeah this is a bunch of folks acting like they shouldn't be acting and somebody needs to come in and probably take them out and, and teach them a thing or two and let Texas get back to leading the nation and not becoming a laughing stock. Yeah, and surprisingly, as you mentioned, uh, it seemed as if Paxton was kind of on a trajectory to greater and, and better things, uh, you know, perhaps even at a level beyond Texas at some point. But perhaps if this impeachment goes through, uh, visions of that are going to come to a screeching halt. All right, let's take a time out. When we come back, I want to um, turn a corner here as we finished our screeching halt to uh, talk about a couple of other big items in the news and we'll get to that as our conversation with best-selling author joe murray continues on this edition of lifeline 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're back with attorney, educator, and author Joe Murray. A look at the top stories of the week and their impact on your life. Joe, one story that uh, will perhaps um, pique your legal mind. Um, we are all painfully familiar with the collapse of um, the the um, trading platform F. TX, and we know that uh, old brother Sam may uh, we never see daylight again at the rate things are going as more and more information about this comes public. But I, what I found fascinating was to learn today that uh, basketball star Shaq O'Neal is now part of a class action lawsuit. He's been apparently trying to kind of dodge the uh, process servers, but that came to a, a screeching halt um, as he was in Miami at um, a uh, Miami Heat-Boston Celtics game, and they finally served papers on him. Uh, the allegation there is that, uh, according to this class action lawsuit, uh, he participated in defrauding FTX investors by appearing in Get this advertisements for the cryptocurrency company. Now, you know, celebrities do endorsements all the time. In fact, if you're in the sports world or film world, that's kind of a big revenue source for you. Now, you know, if this was a scam that you were aware of and got in on the bottom floor and intended to be a part of this and, and use your celebrity persona to to scam people, you know, then they got you dead to rights. But here, a case where FTX was going out and paying celebrities to endorse the product, how do they know what's going on? All of a sudden, now they're on the hook. You think we're going to start seeing more cases like this? And from a legal standpoint, what are the chances of this actually coming to fruition, meaning the class action suit winning and actually getting penalties out of people like Shaq O'Neal and others? that uh, went public in supporting this company? Done. I mean, if I'm just paid uh, to be a spokesperson, I'm not going to be liable uh, because I have to know what I'm doing is fraudulent. I, if I'm in the dark, I, I can't be committing fraud. Uh, there has to be a level of intent. So the question is going to be, and, and I guess we'll see this as it, it kind of pans out, well, let me just put it this way. The first thing that I thought was odd about this case is that Shaquille went out of his way to kind of evade the service uh, being served. And that's just kind of bizarre because they're going to get you. You can't, unless you're going to leave the country and not come back, they're going to find you. <laughs> and, and even if you do that, the minute your plane lands back in, land. in New York, they got you. They're going to get you. So if, if this case is as weak and as, as, as shaky as you and I are both saying it is because you can't be sued for just being a, an endorser, then why not get served, move for dismissal, and move on with your life? So that, that is the thing that has, has me intrigued. Is there more than meets the eye here? Uh, we will find out eventually because now that he's served, the, the lawsuit will, will progress because he will have to answer the complaint. He'll probably move forward dismissal, and we'll start to see more of the evidence that uh, the plaintiffs in these case in this class action suit has and they'll need to now put their money where their mouth is. Uh, and it can't just be con conjecture that, well, he must have known. No, that ain't going to fly. They're going to have to put up some type of evidence, well, even direct or circumstantial, that uh, Shaquille knew 
that this was a fraudulent endeavor, and he continued to promote it despite that knowledge. That is what they're going to have to prove to some degree. Now, there's certainly details about this that none of us are privy to just yet, but if you just take everything at face value from a legal standpoint, in your opinion, Counselor, is this sort of a a Hail Mary and hoping maybe something will stick? Yes or no. I mean, like I said, we don't know yet. Uh, You know, complaints are notoriously bare bones because plaintiff's counsels do not want to put everything in their complaint because they don't want to. It'd be like playing uh, poker with the cards on the table. You don't want to show your hand just yet. Um, So we will start to see that because. What will happen is once that complaint is answered, I know the defense, uh, Shaquille O'Neal's attorneys are going to move for dismissal. And at this point, you have to start putting up more evidence. And we'll start to see if this is a Hail Mary, basically, uh, you know, built on, uh, you know, uh, know, uh, a straw man. Or are we going to see actually more here? And the fact that they went through the process of, of getting this certified as a class action makes me believe that there has to be something here. Now, whether it's something that's going to stick, I don't know, but it's going to be more than just your normal, uh, I'm going to toss it down the field and hope that, um, you know, hope that they come down with it. Now, while you still have uh, your your attorney's hat on firmly in place, uh, let me pivot to another topic. Caught my attention late today, but I think it's fascinating. Um, you probably heard the report that uh, Brian Laundrie, uh, this is the gentleman that, um, for all appearance sake, seems to have been responsible for taking the life of his girl friend, uh, Gabby Petito, out in the middle of, uh, I think it was Utah or someplace, anyway, out, out in kind of a barren area. Uh, now it turns out that a letter from Brian Laundrie's mother, written to him, offering to provide a shovel and garbage bags if needed in order to dispose of a body. Now, seemingly not the kind of letter that mom writes you. You know, how's life treating you? How's school? Do you need help burying a body? Uh, This is a case now, of course, that's going to be headed to civil court uh, between the two families, the family of uh, the the girlfriend, the late Gabby Petito, as well as that of Brian Laundrie. But this letter, apparently, was found in Laundrie's backpack when his body was found after he committed suicide in 2021. The letter was inside of an envelope that said, burn after reading. Now, I'm curious, Counselor, um, I'm no expert, but, you know, there are pretty stiff penalties for conspiracy to commit murder, or would this fit in the category of of being a co-conspirator after the fact to help cover Mm -hmm. up a crime? I mean, you know, setting parental care for a child aside for a moment, helping your son hide the evidence in a capital crime, probably not a good idea. Yeah, no, there's a whole laundry list of felonies that are going to be coming that way, and then, of course, civil lawsuits as well, because, of course, the civil standard is just preponderance of the evidence, which is basically 50% plus one, and a little bit harder than, than in a criminal case, which is probably around 75%, but you got the letter. Now, I mean, if it says burn after reading, <laughs> I would hope that you, uh, you uh, well, you, that, anyway. Should have followed instructions there, Brian. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it should have, I mean, well, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So the mom is in, and I get it. I mean, I, you, you know, I would hate to be a parent in that situation. You see your child, you know, your child has done something horrible. You would think that as a parent that you would do the right thing uh, for your child, which is not help dispose of evidence, but to help your child face the consequences and possibly get the help that they need. 
So, yeah, I do not think there'll be a sympathetic jury uh, for, for, for this mom. Uh, you know, it, it's an unfortunate event. And it was just unfortunate all around how it happened that he committed suicide. And now this mother is going to have to start to be the latest victim in this in this really web of, of misery that we see. Yeah, and sadly, the, the tragedy here is that the, the victimization, you know, it knows no limits. It's one thing to lose a son and a daughter to circumstances like this, but now have to potentially be implicated in being a part of the crime as well. Wow. Pretty incredible stuff. And we're visiting today with best-selling author, attorney, and educator Joe Murray. His book called Take Back Education, available through Amazon.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about taking back the debt ceiling. <laughs> Let's see who's going to win in that battle. And some closing thoughts from Joe as we take a quick trip around the corner. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you're listening to our uh, terrestrial signal tonight, you you heard a question there at the end of that commercial about all the details. That's what they're asking for of uh, the the current House Speaker. They they want to know all the details. And I don't know that we're going to have much coming forward from uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, but there have been some questions about what kind of deal-making is going on behind the scenes between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, We know that there's some talk about maybe kind of creating an incentive to pass some spending bills and at the same token to not spend money that had been earmarked for COVID. Uh, you know, I had an economist on Joe earlier in the week who said, could they blow past the deadline? It's possible, but not probable, given the... Um, given the potential ramifications for the economy by failing to address the debt ceiling on time. But that says nothing to the possible consequences from a political standpoint of deal-making going on from either side of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it right now, I think one of the easiest things that you had already mentioned is, you know, let's let's claw back that $30 billion of money that was earmarked for covid uh, that's just kind of out there. Uh, you know, that's not going to be a lot of money, but in this situation, every little bit helps. I think where we're seeing a lot of the sticking uh, in the political uh, uh, gridlock is over the work requirements that the Republicans are wanting to bring back now. And this is this tells you where we are as a country. These are pretty much uh, demands that President Bill Clinton would have agreed to easily back in the 90s. Uh, and, and it would save a good amount of money, about $120 billion. And it's just basically requiring that uh, if you are able-bodied with no dependents, you need to be able to go out back to work. Uh, you know, there has to be a work requirement. And McCarthy says it really well. He says, why should we borrow from China to pay someone to sit on their couch and watch Judge Judy? Uh, <laughs> it, it makes zero sense. And I think that the trickiest one that they have going on and, and, and the GOP uh, demand that the federal budget baseline number in 2024 needs to be less than what it was in 2023. And these are not unreasonable demands. The The media is making it out that the Republicans are asking for the moon and back. I think if they were telling the true story, these are the demands. I think most Americans say, yes, 
We need to reduce that baseline, that budget baseline. We don't need to keep expanding it because we don't have the money to pay it. And I know that the debt is paying our money we've already expended, but we can't keep rising it and buying more. So every year we say, oh, well, we just have to pay it because we spent it. Well, we spent it because we didn't reduce what we needed to buy. So I think most people would agree with these measures. They're not unreasonable. Well, and demonstrative of California, kind of in a microcosm way, you know, with a lot of fanfare, the governor a year ago said we're going to start providing tax rebates. Uh, It's going to be a way to help people kind of get over the hump of the pain of COVID. And, you know, after all, we've, uh, we've been through a tough economic time here, so let's help folks out, stimulate the California economy at the same time. So we're just going to, you know, random send out uh, debit cards up to, I think, $350 is the largest amount that they would make available. So, you know, it was raining money a year ago, and now of the $305 billion state budget, fully 31.5 is all deficit spending because we gave yeah. away money that we didn't have. And, the, you know, the irony is we would say to anybody who managed their personal household finances that way, yeah. look, you can't spend more than you take in. And by the way, it's not a good idea to spend everything you bring in. But, yeah. okay, if you're going to do that to keep the you know roof over your head, we get that. But don't keep spending more than what you bring in. And that's exactly what the scenario is here. That, you know, if, if this debt ceiling, and let me be clear about this, if the debt ceiling is increased, that doesn't mean, hooray, we, ne- we need to we get to go out and spend more money on more stuff. All that means is, hooray, we get to pay the bills for the stuff we've already spent money on already. Exactly. And I think that's what we need to look at. And, and, you know, it's amazing that not even in this discussion is the amount of money we're providing to, say, Ukraine uh, and, and, and some of the stuff that we're spending overseas. So to me, this has been a very meek and mild debt feeling debate. Uh, you know, we, we've been doing these for quite some time and, and they get really tense. And whether it's a Republican as president or a Democrat as president and vice versa with the House, uh, the Congress. So, uh, you know, this has been very meek and mild. So I, I'm putting this on Biden because, again, the demands have not been that unreasonable. McCarthy really could in. I think it was... Um, I can't remember. It's a congressman from Texas, and he he came out with a wish list that wanted to do away with the the eighty thousand or the extra money for the uh, for the IRS agents that they're now going to be using money for. I mean, he he wanted everything under the under the sun, and that's not what McCarthy's doing. McCarthy is presenting a very measured, very reasonable uh, plan, and and Biden is not able to do it because of the progressives in his party who will not budge, and and they will hold him accountable and he's scared of them right now he'd rather default than upset the radicals in his own party you know what's sad about this is that america has had a history of learning to come together to compromise each one gives one takes one we kind of meet ourselves in the middle here Uh, the sad thing is that we are encouraging a broader and deeper chasm uh, which is just going to guarantee nothing but these kinds of debates and the stress that's added to americans i mean i i heard a reporter the other day and forgive me joe if i mentioned this last 
last week yeah. who who was saying, uh, well, you know, now is the time that senior citizens need to start saving money in case this deal doesn't get done. They can't expect to receive their Social Security check come June. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? How many Californians alone that barely eke out survival on a Social Security mm-hmm. check? You think they can just stop on the 20th of May and say, yeah, I'm I'm going to stop spending all that money I got here just hanging out in the house, <laughs> set it aside for next month when I don't get my Social Security check so I can, you know, make the rent payment, make the mortgage payment, whatever. I mean, it, it's absolutely ludicrous. But I think what I find particularly troubling is this notion that it, we're making it more and more difficult to try and and come to reason as if one side believes that the other side, that they're not even Americans anymore, that only our side are the Americans. And I think it's shameful. Yeah, and, and that's where it comes from. It used to be in years past that we had different ways of getting to a, a conclusion, but we were trying to reach the same conclusion. Now we have two very different conclusions, and we have kind of bifurcated ourselves into good and evil. So one side thinks they're good, the other side thinks they're evil, and vice versa when you, when you switch. And when you think that you're negotiating with evil, you don't negotiate. It's as simple as that, because why would you negotiate with evil? You wouldn't negotiate with Hitler, so why would you negotiate with evil? And and when you have that mindset, there is no compromise. And when there's no compromise, nothing gets done, because you and I know the art of negotiation. You have a wish list that you know is never going to get, uh, get, uh, get enacted, but you start with that because you also have the idea of what you think you can actually achieve. But we're not doing that anymore. We're throwing down these unreasonable demands that we know will never be approved, and, and the country is suffering because of it. Well, and we, we recently had a member of Congress who's, well, I was going to say made an embarrassing statement. Actually, this individual's made multiple embarrassing mm-hmm. statements. But the notion that, well, maybe we just need to call for a national divorce. Yeah, it doesn't quite work like that. And when you start using that kind of language that, well, if we just can't come to a meeting of the minds and if our side is not going to get what it wants, we're just going to pick up our marbles and leave. Uh, what you're talking about is is literally destroying the country. I mean, that that's the end result of that. A national divorce between conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans and the red states and the blue states means completely tearing this country apart, in which case we might as well just pack up our bags, hand the keys to Vladimir Putin and say, take it, it's yours. Yeah, I mean, you, you cannot. And honestly, let's, it wouldn't even work because even if you had the divorce, what divorce has you ever, even when you have a divorce where you part both ways, what happens to the ex-husbands and wives? They still are obsessed with each other for the most part, especially early on, and they still try to meddle in each other's lives. So even if they got their wish, do you think it would end there? It wouldn't. We'd be still too close to each other. So instead of thinking of the nonsense, we need to start thinking about how we can get back to the idea that we do want the same thing. And if you really don't, we have to kind of silence these people on the on the fringe that are deliberately poisoning the debate so they can get their own way, which is more self-interested than national, than than interested in the national. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know what? We have to be mindful of the fact that we are all Americans. Sometimes we agree, a lot of times we disagree. 
But if we can't at least come to that point, I don't know how much hope there is for this nation. I mean, you can get into a national divorce. You know what happens in national divorces? A judge comes in and says, you get the house, you get the retirement fund, you get the kids so many days a week, you get them on the week. It just Nobody wins. Absolutely nobody wins. Joe Murray, it's always such a delight to have you share and offer insights and opine and use your background as an attorney and uh, as an educator and somebody that's been involved in politics for many, many years. And I want to thank you. And on behalf of the listeners, thank you as well for the time and the insights and wish you a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. Same to you, my friend. I will talk to you on the other side. Sounds like a plan. All right. There is a constitutional lawyer, Joe Murray, again. Details available on his book, Take Back Education. Check it out online at Amazon.com. Coming up around the corner, we've got Dr. Roger Chen's going to join us from Grace Church by the Bay as Lifeline continues. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.